You're listening to the Sick Mom's Guide Podcast, episode 15. Welcome to the Sick Mom's Guide Podcast. If my mom can do it, you can too. Thanks so much for joining me today. I am Jen Hardy. I'm the mom of seven children. At the date of this recording, they range in age from 6 to 28. I have had chronic illness my entire life, but it wasn't identified until recently. So I've slowly been declining this whole time, chasing diagnoses. My most recent one is muscular dystrophy, which explains a lot. I have a few other eclectic diseases thrown in there. And throughout this parenting journey that I've had raising these children, I have come up with a lot of different systems and ways to cope and handle dealing with being a parent and dealing with the medical system and all these variety of things while spending a lot of time in bed or on the couch. And I have this podcast so that I can share them with you and we can encourage each other and make each other's lives better. Today's episode is pretty intense. It is about abuse. I have got a very qualified guest today. She's a postdoctoral psychologist. She works, well, I'll let her explain what she does for work, but you will be astounded at what she does. Her personal story starts 19 minutes and 30 seconds in. If you want to go to that and listen to that first, you will just be shocked and amazed at what this woman has gone through. The strength that she has gained through it is amazing. She has learned to help other women avoid the pitfalls that she's gone through. She is completely transparent and open and honest and brilliant. And I am very honored to have her on the show today. So sit back and listen and it uh, gets a little intense, but I think it's really important that we talk about this topic and what the signs are really like, what to look for so that we can help each other out. Well, welcome, Dr. Natalie Jones. I am so excited to have you today. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be on. I appreciate you having me on and working with me through the technology issues that I've had. (laughs) Oh, no problem at all. I am just so happy that you're here because I it didn't even occur to me to talk about one of the subjects we're going to talk about today. And I just think it's so important for people to understand. I know as a woman getting healthcare isn't as easy as I go with my husband or when he goes. Um, So that's been an issue that a lot of women have talked about, but you had said something um, when I saw something you were posting earlier about minority mental health. And I thought, Oh my gosh, this sounds like something that we should be talking about. Definitely. So, um, so actually, and before that, I'm sorry, I didn't even ask you to tell who, tell us a little bit about you and who you are. And Okay, yeah. So um, I'm Dr. Natalie Jones. I, I'm based out of Oakland, California. I have a private practice there in Oakland, California. Um, in my practice, I work with women of color who are victims of narcissistic abuse. Um, I've also contracted as a federal contractor, um, you know, at point certain points with the Department of Probation and pretrial. Um, so I've also seen criminal offenders in my practice. I don't do too much of that anymore. Um, but I also work as a psychotherapist inside a correctional mental health. So I work in a prison in my day job. Uh, so I, I basically work 
with opposite ends of the spectrum. I work with people who commit crimes against persons um, during the day, and then I work with victims of, of abuse and um, in corrections. I work with sex offenders, um, guys who murdered people, and just all kinds of stuff, um, you know, that they've done. And so I usually do groups, individual mental health um, counseling or assessments. Um, and then I also have my own podcast uh, dedicated to victims of narcissistic abuse. Uh, it's called A Date with Darkness. Um, and so I do that as well, in addition to everything else. Oh, my gosh, you have got a lot going on. Yes. And so that's really interesting. So you can see, not that you empathize maybe with the perpetrators, obviously, but it must be really good as a therapist to see both, you know, see where the perpetrators are coming from at least, right? So then does that help you, do you think, with the people who are the victims in their counseling? It helps me a great deal. Um, I feel like I do have a unique insight in working with both perpetrators and victims. There's also some similarities in working with both because I won't say all the time, but I'll say maybe eight or nine times out of 10 perpetrators were also victims at one point. Um, And abuse is never a linear thing, uh, meaning that, you know, you have one person that's abuser and then one person that's a victim. Typically what happens is that you have people, um, even that are victims, that become abusive in some point of time or another. That's what I found out. I've researched it. I've studied it. Um, And even victims can also become abusive at another point in time. Um, You know, even though a lot of people, it's like, it's kind of like one of those things that they don't like to think about. Um, But, you know, that can happen. Also just having the understanding of the impact that abuse has on brain development on some people and, and, and affects how they're able to relate with other people in relationships. So it's basically all of this stuff, um, the majority of this stuff stems from relationship trauma. And that's basically what it boils down to for the most part. You do have um, some outliers out there that that don't fall into that neat box, but those are few and far between. For someone, let's say someone has been in an abusive situation and they're listening and they think, oh, well, wait a minute. You know, if a lot of times people who have been abused start abusing, how do I stop that? Or how do I realize if what I'm doing starts looking like it's turning into that? You know, um, I think, you know, you first of all is having that awareness into what's going on um, to, to kind of take a step back. So, and, and a lot of times people who are in an abusive situation may not necessarily know that they just, they're just so caught up in that bubble. So if the people around you are saying that's usually a cue, like people around you are saying that they're concerned or they're seeing certain things like your friends or people that love you and know you are saying these things. Um, it's also a good idea to see a therapist, um, someone who's very objective and neutral and can help you point out these things. The other thing too um, that I've noticed with people is a lot of times they will say to themselves, like, I don't want 
to be like my mom or my dad or the person um, in their life that they experienced abuse from, but they'll, they'll be thinking to themselves like, gosh, I'm just like the person who I did not want to be anything like. And so that's usually an indicator that something else is going on. Um, and then again, it's not a linear relationship. So you, you, you can see um, abuse or, you know, toxicity or dysfunctionalism come up in several relationships in your life. So that could be your relationship with your employer. That can be relationships with friends. It can be a relationship with food or money or other things that you don't realize what's going on. Uh, but typically it's not just a linear thing. You start to see how um, your trauma or your relationships or, or lack of healthy relationships has impacted other areas of your lives. And another telltale sign, um, I know for many of the women that I work with, oftentimes comes up not only in relationships with their partners or their lovers, but more specifically in their relationship with their children. Okay. So how, if you, let's say somebody's listening and they think, oh my gosh, you know, I didn't even realize, <clears throat> you know, I know I went through this before, but I didn't realize, and maybe I'm not treating other people the way I feel like I should be. Mm-hmm. What is the best thing for them to do? Um, pay attention to, you know, again, it's being mindful. So, you know, and when I say mindfulness, I know it sounds like this therapy therapist you were, but mindfulness basically means being aware, right? So when you are more aware of, okay, how are you feeling? Um, You know, and how are you feeling in specific situations? How are you feeling around specific people? What's triggering or what's causing you to feel a certain way? What's causing you to want to lash out? What's causing you to want to feel negative? What's causing you to do certain things? What's causing you to be argumentative? What's causing you to name call? What's causing you to accuse someone of doing certain things or be a certain way towards you? Okay. Okay. And then does, does, is, is therapy a good way to go if people are just having a hard time breaking that? that Therapy is always a good way to go. I feel like, um, you know, for me, I always say that just like diet and exercise, you know, therapy or mental health or mental wellness is just as important. I like to say that, um, you know, therapy is like a mental laxative. It's one of those ways in which you just kind of get everything out, you decompress, um, and you keep your mind healthy, um, and you have that relationship with an objective person. But what most people tend to do is they wait till it gets all bad and then they want like help. But I, I think it's almost like keeping an oil change or, you know, maintenance on your car or maintenance on your body, just like diet and exercise. I do think it's something that you should have in place so that it should something fail or should situations get bad, you already have those systems in place to help keep you grounded and supported and keep you going on to the next situation or or just on to the next day, the next week, and so that everything doesn't fall apart. Um, and you don't you don't have that crisis where you feel like you just got to dig yourself back out of this hole, but you can already be like, okay, this is a minor setback or this is a setback. But I have people in my life 
there who are already ready to support me and that I can get that feedback from and get those um, tips on how to cope and, and what I need to do already ready to go. Okay. Well, that's great. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Cause I know there's a, there's a lot of people <clears throat> that struggle that struggle with that. Yes. And do you, yeah, more than, more than people realize, I think, um, have people gone through that? So an interesting thing um, that I noticed is that you had talked about minority mental health. Yes. And so I'm wondering what's different because I had no idea that there w- that there would be a difference at all until I read that. And then I thought, oh my goodness, I know as a woman, right? Yes. Trying to get help can be different, but it yes. didn't occur to me that it might be harder or anything um, for someone who's a minority. Because can you talk about that a little bit? Most definitely. And, you know, when thinking about minority mental health, I also think a lot about the culture of of minority. And and when we say mental health, you know, a lot of minority cultures feel like, okay, well, I'm not crazy. So I don't need to go to therapy or that's, it's like frowned upon unless you are quote unquote crazy. Um, You know, I don't need to go to a therapist. I'm not, you know, I'm struggling. I I might want to go to church. I might want to talk to my family or my friends and, you know, other people in my life. And so they feel like, again, that you really have to be all out, just like, you know, really struggling in order to access mental health services, whereas I feel like it's quite the opposite, right? And so a lot of times when I see people come to me in my practice, they are really struggling. Because they've let things go for so long and get to the point where it's so bad. It's like they are in crisis mode because for the simple fact that therapy is frowned upon or it's, it's, it's you know, if you're going to see someone, it's taken in a negative light as if there's something wrong with you in order to access those services. Um, the other piece, too, is that it's traditionally been very difficult to access another minority when you're trying to go to counseling. So for me, myself, and for a lot of other people, I know you want someone that looks like you, that understands you, and that has um, been exposed to a lot of the experiences that minorities go through, such as microaggressions, inability to access, um, you know, services, or just being treated differently because of the color of your skin, where you've come from, or just other things, understanding things like colorisms or hair textures, or, or being treated differently because you are, or you fit into this quote-unquote category. And so you want someone who gets that that cultural um, experience and is open to kind of exploring that and doesn't necessarily shut that down or minimize those experiences, if that makes sense. Oh, that totally makes sense. And, you know, I think for a lot of people, like as a white woman, right? Well, you know, I wouldn't really necessarily think about that. I would just like call somebody and make an appointment and just assume that their life experience would be relatively similar to mine, right? And so I think it's good for people to understand that people who are culturally, you know, have, have, have cultural differences, experience things differently. And it, and it's okay to identify that and talk about it. And I think right now there's this like color washing mm-hmm. kind of, you know, right. Where nobody wants to 
everyone wants to just pretend like everybody's the same and everyone's experiences are the same instead of saying, yes, we're all equal, but that doesn't mean we're all exactly the same. We do have differences and it's okay to recognize that and say, when I go to get help, I want to get help from somebody who gets what my issues Mm. are. Right. You want to get someone who gets what your issues are. You don't want to be generalized or stereotyped against. And you also don't want someone who's going to treat your experiences as if they're paranoid, uh, fearful, or they're just um, minimizing your experiences as a minority, as a culture, or they just don't get it. Um, It could be situations where they just don't get it and they don't understand it. Um, And so there's just like, um, for lack of a better word, a total ignorance about that culture, um, about your culture or an insensitivity to wanting to understand and learn more about your culture. And it's just, it's basically dismissive. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. And I think until recently, a lot of people didn't understand what people were going through. You know, I think a lot of the headlines have kind of pointed out the big things, but not the nuances, like the kind of things you're talking about, like things like hair hair texture and like simple things that for somebody else who's not struggling with different, you know, like different small things that to us think, oh, that's one little difference. What difference does it make? To someone who that's part of their life, it's a huge thing. You know, it's a huge thing. And so I think it's great that people like you are talking about it so that people like me can get it because I want to get it right. And I want to have more empathy with the people that I'm talking to, especially out here in this world of chronic illness and depression and anxiety and to understand that our struggles are not all the same, right? So in in the big pool, we are all together. We all have different nuanced Yes. Things about our lives and your experience may be similar to mine, but it's not exactly the same as mine. And I love that you're willing to talk about it. We need more people, I think, who have this open dialogue and say, hey, you know, yes, we we need help because of this. And I we need you to understand this and for yes. people to actually listen. <laughs> you know, so that we can understand. Definitely, definitely. So that is awesome. Okay, well, I'm so glad that you talked about that part. And, and, um, and I know there's something else that you that you deal with, too. And I know that it may be you may be dealing with more people in the minority category. But this next issue affects a lot of people, no matter where they're coming from. And that is helping women heal from abusive relationships. Correct. I know a lot of what you do is specifically mothers like narcissistic mothers. And, um, and I don't know if you have some like cultural differences that you would like to share and how that, yeah, I just, I don't even know what questions to ask, <laughs> you know, and because I, I, it's so exciting to me because this is all different. Yes. So how did you come to, how did you come to do that? I guess would be my first question. Uh, specialize in treating women with abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it comes from my, a combination of my education, my training, and then also to my own personal experience played a huge part in that. Um, You know, I had, you know, I was in grad school uh, and I I went through several years of grad school because I got my master's, I got my doctorate. And then, uh, you know, during grad school, I was also in a couple of long-term relationships, which did not turn out so well. Um, And um, 
both of them, I felt like they were very costly and they left me holding the bag. So um, in one of my relationships, my partner and I, we were together for seven years and he did not work. And that was a big source of contention for us because I was always coming from um, this the stance like, okay, well, I need you to work to provide. I'm in school. I'm working two to three jobs at the time and trying to support. And, you know, he would be like, no, no, no. And he would kind of give me this sad story. Like, you know, my parents stole my credit or, you know, it's hard for, you know, a man to get a job right now and always give me this uh, reason as to why he couldn't do it. Um, And then one day it just got to a certain point where I was just like, I was done with the relationship wanted out of it. I didn't, I didn't want to fight about money or his inability, inability or unwillingness rather to contribute financially to the relationship as well as in other ways. Um, but the last argument we had was finances. And so I packed up his stuff and put it at the door. I was like, I'm, I'm done. I don't, I don't care what you do. And so it, when I did that, he actually called the police and told them that I was threatening to kill him and, you know, this kind of stuff. And so he, he filed a complaint and in Oakland, Alameda County, as well as several other counties in uh, California, there's a zero tolerance policy. And basically what that means is if the police comes out for a domestic dispute, uh, typically someone is going to jail. Because for the simple fact that they come out. And so that basically says that if I make an accusation uh, accusation against you, even if there's no proof, you go to jail unless you can provide proof that I've done something to you. And so that's basically what happened. Um, And I... I have to say before that experience, I was very naive and I thought, oh, they're going to blow over. This is BS. You know, they're, they're going to find out. Well, no, I actually went to court and they, you know, what, what happens is you go to court and they continue and continue and continue. And, and then in the interim, um, they try to get the other person and try to testify and provide some sort of evidence or whatever. So they continue until they get something. And also while they're doing that, that person gets to stay um, wherever they were living and rent-free and all that. And I have to, you know, I have to pay for it. So I can't stay there because they've now given this sort of order, but I still have to pay for it and basically accommodate that person's lifestyle. That this, you know, whatever the thing I was trying to get away from is now what the court is telling me that they have to do that I have to do. And so we, I had to do that for several months until they just finally dismissed the case due to lack of evidence. But it took, I think it took like six or seven months for them to do that. Oh my gosh. Um, I cannot even imagine. You you cannot, I mean, you cannot imagine. And so, you know, that basically puts your career in jeopardy. It puts your, it puts everything in jeopardy because they try to charge you the harshest thing. And so then, then they try to prove that, but they never came up with nothing because there is nothing except for a guy who doesn't want to work. Um, and while I was in the courtroom, um, you know, talking with my attorney and, um, you know, I'm basically helping him out because this is new and I'm, I'm frantic and I'm like looking up all this information because I don't want to lose my career, you know, and if you're in mental health or if you're a doctor, you're whatever, you have to have a license. But if you have a felony on your record, you know, at that time you could kiss it. Bye-bye. 
you're, right. you're pretty much done. And so I'm asking him all these questions, trying to see how I can get it dismissed and telling him what's going on. And when you're in court, court is not anything like you see on TV. It's crowded. It's like everybody and their mama is there. There's no privacy. And so everybody can hear your case of what you're going through. And so it just so happens that when I was in court and I'm talking with my attorney and I've, I've done research on the internet and I'm telling him all these things and asking him all these things to bring up, there were several other women who were there that were in a similar predicament. Um, there was a, a lady who was like a nurse and she, she's like, well, I want to know too. I mean, he's not my attorney, but I hear you asking him these questions and I don't want to lose my nursing license because of something my partner did against me. Right. And so people were asking me questions, seeing if I knew the answer because they overheard me, uh, you know, going through these things with my attorney. And so they're like trying to listen and they're asking me and I'm like, holy cow, there's like a ton of people that are going through the exact same thing um, that I'm going through where like they have this partner that's just kind of filed these bogus claims on them and they're left holding the bag. And so it was through mainly through that experience. There's a couple other experiences that I have, but mainly through that one where I realized that there's a lot of women who actually go through this. And then there's, there was actually an article um, that I pulled last week about how there are a lot of women who are in jail or go to prison for defending themselves or, you know, that are tr trying to get out of a domestic violence relationship. And so you you end up being a victim for so long and then you try to defend yourself. And guess what? You are now incarcerated or you now get arrested for that. So it's actually a very common theme. Um, and that's that's kind of where that whole thing um came from in terms of working with victims or women who were victims of abuse came from. And, um, you know, I had started out on a forensic path. Um, so I knew going into therapy and uh, psychology that I wanted to do forensics. And when I went through that experience, that left a bitter taste in my mouth and I didn't want to do forensics anymore because I was like, okay, I see what people are talking about in terms of it being unjust, um, racially biased, because that's also another thing that I got to see was I got to, you know, I got to spend like a couple hours in jail um, but I also got to see how many women were there for bogus, for, for what they told me was bogus. I mean, you, I had, I saw women that were in there for nine months, um, it, you know, for stealing a t-shirt or for, you know, dumb oh stuff. Oh my gosh, yeah. They spent, and they were continuing to do time because they couldn't afford an attorney and then court takes for forever. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of black and brown women that were just, it, uh, I, I don't want to make light of it or make it seem light, but it almost seemed like a summer camp for black and brown women in prison wow. or for jail in jail because it was county jail I went to, but not prison. But I've also worked in a prison um, and still continue to do so. I've worked in a prison for women and then I, I work in corrections for men. But when I saw the women who were in county, they had been there for months and months and sometimes a year or more for just, you know, petty crimes, what I perceive to be petty crimes. And so I said, okay, well, it's obvious that women of color need some intervention there. I mean, these are women that look like me and that are just kind of, they got themselves caught up in a situation or they made some mistakes. Um, but anyhow, 
Um, even though I had, you know, when I went through that experience, I decided I didn't want to do forensics anymore. I didn't, I didn't believe in the system. I thought it was unjust, but I just kind of, I got pulled back into it because people knew me for my work and knew that I had worked with offenders before. Um, and so I just got called into contract positions and other positions. And so I, I just, I went back into it and, um, you know, so that's that's pretty much how I got on that end. But in working with victims, I really have to say it was, a, a, you know, mostly my own personal experience that led me to that. Oh, my gosh, I can't even I can't even imagine, you know, and then and that's something that's why I wanted to have you, you know, that something that like somebody like me, like I've never even heard of anything right. like that. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know it existed. And it's so yeah. important that we yeah. have this dialogue open and people understand what others are facing in our culture. Yes. You know, it's, it's definitely, it was definitely an eye opener. And I have to say that even though I had worked, you know, with, um, you know, people who have been incarcerated before, I, I was very naive and very green. And I thought, you know, prior to my own experience, unless you've done something or unless you're affiliated with people who've done something, people that are innocent don't go to jail unless you're doing something that you're not supposed to or you're around, you're affiliated with people that are doing something that right. you're not supposed to. I never would have thought, you know, in a million years that I would go to jail for loving a man. And, um, well, and boy, did he, did he know how that was going to turn out in his face? I mean, that is amazing to me that I, I mean, I can't even wrap my brain around it. I just, any, any part of it. I don't think he cared at that point. I think he just wanted what he wanted and what he wanted was the security of not having to work and not having to provide, but basically having all of his needs met. And it was just a huge, it became such a huge burden. It became a monkey on my back. What I wanted and what he wanted were two different things. I wanted stability. I wanted security in a relationship. I wanted to build. I wanted to grow. I wanted to get married. I wanted to have a family. And I thought by um, giving so much or trying to just do so much and, and get this validation and, and, and create this perfect relationship um, in my mind that I would eventually get to that, but it never came to fruition. And that day I realized um, how selfish he was and that he's not going to get a job. He's not, he doesn't give a damn about how I'm struggling or, you know, he, he doesn't care because anybody who cares about you is going to be able to sit down and have this talk with you. They're going to problem solve. And most importantly, they're not going to want to see someone that they care about in a lot of distress, uh, breaking their back, working crazy hours for a mediocre amount of money just so that you don't have to work if they really care about you. Right. Exactly. And and I think it's just a testament too to how strong you are as a person, you know, because you didn't just say, oh, well, you know, this is what happened to me. Yeah. So I'm just going to, you know, lose my saying and whatever. I mean, you yeah. fought, you researched, you fought, yeah. you learned. And now look at what you're able to do for other people, you know, because yeah. of that. Like, it yeah. just amazes me how strong women can be when somebody pushes us up against a wall, right? Yeah. We can really we can do so many things that we never thought possible. I mean, you probably, I mean, never, who could imagine anything like that ever happening anyway, but, but to see what's come out of it and, and how you're able to help people in a completely different way now than ever before. And I think hopefully someone listening 
can hear this and think, oh, wow. So this problem, this problem is way bigger than like a news headline a couple times a year, right? This is an intense problem that's happening it is all over the place. And it's one, you know, and I can't say that I was so strong and diligent because there were times when I was going through that, where I was just like, I'm going to kill myself. I'm not going to make it, you know, because there's a lot that goes into that where you feel like you're going to lose everything. And it, it's, it, it becomes a situation where you literally have your life or the power of your life or your well-being is in someone else's hands and they can strike it through with just a stroke of a pen or with a, a hammer and a, a gavel and say, you know what, that's that. But it really does happen to a lot of women. Um, and one of the things I, you know, experienced, even when I went to jail that night is uh, there was a Hispanic girl there um, and she was talking a lot about how her mother was taking, trying to take her kids away from her. And her mother had called the police because they had gotten into an altercation. And so here she is, she's worried about deportation and all these other things. And it was amazing to see like the women who were in there telling her about all the resources that she could get and how she could fight her case. So it's, it's, yeah, it's it's a truly interesting experience, but I just, I got to say it's, it's up and down. It can be very up and down, but um, I do think that our life takes us on journeys so that we, it's, it's a lesson essentially. Um, and, and we got to do what we can from what we learn. Right. Oh, well, that's amazing. Well, there was another whole thing I wanted to talk to you yeah. about today. And I may want to, if you want, we can do this again another day because, yeah. oh my gosh, I would love to talk about moms and abusive okay. relationships there. But I think what you've shared now, it's so much to take in. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so amazing. I'm so glad that you came and shared it. Yeah. Because like I said, I mean, people just need to know and they need to understand what's what's happening out there right yeah. they need to know and maybe have a little bit more com- uh, compassion for the people around you right and reach out to people that are different just because like you say you just because we look different on the outside you know right. we're all right. people and and you'll learn so much by talking to somebody else you and do. be able to help out each other because of our unique strengths you do yeah you, know? you can you can and then like i said this appears to be an epidemic so you know, if women aren't shame, ashamed of what they went through, because that's what I, I was. I was ashamed and I felt alone for a long time. But if more people start speaking out about their experiences and kind of what they've learned, I think it, it definitely helps um, develop an understanding. And like, it makes you feel like you're not alone. Like, holy cow, there's other women who have gone through this. And had I not said, had I not done that, um, had that not happened to me, I probably would still be somewhere struggling with a dysfunctional relationship. I might even still be in that relationship, um, you know, just kind of still going through the same stuff. Right. Wow. Yeah. That's, it's pretty intense. Yeah. yeah. So what advice would you give a woman who's in a, an abusive relationship? If, if she's listening, maybe, and she thinks, oh, you know, maybe this isn't good and she discovers that it's unhealthy, what would be the best thing for her to do? Um, First of all, being aware, um, because there's a lot of times when you are, again, this is kind of the whole mindfulness thing. There's a lot of times when you are in an abusive relationship and 
you know, especially if you're somebody like me who grew up thinking that certain things were normal in a relationship, you know, you don't necessarily look at it as abusive. Um, So being aware is one thing. And the way that you get that awareness is if people around you are concerned, like they're saying, oh, well, um, you know, what's, what's, what's really going on? I'm, I'm really concerned about you or he's not really treating you certainly he or she or whatever your partner may be is not treating you in a way. And I'm, I'm really concerned about that. So if you have people that love you that are reaching out and saying that they are um, concerned about you or, or the way that you're being treated, listen to that because these are people that care about you and they have your best interests at heart. Your partner will oftentimes try to manipulate and twist and turn and say, oh, they're jealous of you or they just, they don't want this and that. But you have to realize these are people that are there. They are emotionally invested in you and want to see you succeed and they want to see you happy. Um, so if you have people like that that are con- concerned and that continue to try to talk to you or, you know, shake you and try to wake you up, listen to that. The other thing, too, um, that you should be mindful or be aware of uh, is secrecy. So if you are shrouded by secrecy, meaning that there's things going on behind closed doors and you try to lie and cover up or you try to fake it Um, when you are around people that you care about, like if you can't be open and honest and let people see what's going on in your home. So for example, um, you know, with the person that I was talking about, like he didn't have a job, but I was like, lying about that I was oh he's he's looking for you know or I would try to cover up and say he's looking he's trying you just don't know and you're you're very defensive but you're trying to cover up and you're trying to present as though your relationship is perfect okay so people that are in truly happy and healthy relationships they don't have to fake it you know they have problems and their problems are real but they can talk about them and then they can they can do what they need to do in order to recover from that if you can't do that then there's a good chance that you're in an abusive relationship if you can't talk about it um if you have to hide or try to hide from family members or friends what's really going on and you can't be open about it you feel like you are alone and that's the other piece too is the isolation piece um You know, a lot of times when you're in an abusive relationship, one of the ways that abuse and cons work is by isolating you away from people that have sense or that can care, that care about you. And they're going to say, hey, this is BS. He's there, you know, BSing you or whatever. So they want to pull you away and they want to just, you know, be able to brainwash. And the easiest way to do that is from isolating you. So if you're not hanging out with Um, friends anymore. You don't have a life or your life is very codependent, meaning that you are just all about your partner and that's it. You don't even, you, you care for your partner more than you care for yourself or you're treating your partner better than you're treating yourself. uh, Then that's, those are definitely red flags there. Um, Also, if you feel like your voice isn't heard, you can't talk about problems in the relationship 
Uh, so if you can't talk about financial problems, you can't talk about sexual problems, you can't talk about any type of problems that are in the relationship and, and be heard. And then you guys sit down together and learn how to problem solve as opposed to your partner stonewalling you, they're ignoring you, they're getting upset or they're twisting and turning the situation around on you or they're changing, they're twisting and turning the situation around on you and then they're changing the subject altogether like they're they're saying that, well, because you did this and, and that and the other, as opposed to really trying to solve the problem and care about the well-being of relationship, the household, and, and building your future together, then that's also another indicator that there's some serious uh, abusive issues going on. And abuse, uh, it doesn't have to be, you know, it doesn't have to be physical. A lot of people um, and even with physical abuse, people get that misconstrued. They say, oh, well, he or she only slapped me once or they only shoved me or they only um, came like they threw some things, but they didn't hit me or something like that. They often discount the seriousness of it or they minimize it. So if you're also doing the minimization, but also recognize that abuse is not just physical, not just sex, uh, sexual abuse, but there's also psychological, there's mental, there's verbal, there's emotional, uh, there's also finan financial abuse, there's also technological abuse. So if someone is like, um, they're watching you, they're monitoring your Facebook, they're monitoring your, your phone, um, you know, they're they're um, monitoring who you hang out with. Uh, they don't allow you to manage the money or see the money that's in the bank account, or they want complete and total control of that, or they, they take the money and they wipe it out. There's a lot of successful women out there who, um, you know, unfortunately are being abused in a variety of ways and financial and technological abuse is definitely on the rise. Um, now that social media is very prevalent, if someone is monitoring you by GPS tracking, you know, with I iPhones and things like that, people can now check to see where you're going and how long you've been in a certain place and things like that. Okay. So what, how, if, if someone is, not being physically abused because I know that's a whole different ball game. Mm. But they realized I am being abused. I need to leave. Is there a certain way that they should do that? I mean, because I, I, the physical abuse thing is a whole different, you know, another steps. But yeah. but can they just, you know, do you just say one day like this is it? Do you pack up and? I mean, is, is there a certain thing we should know? I definitely think it's a, a situation, it's a case by case situation, um, because you know just because something uh, someone may not have physically abused you in the past doesn't mean that things won't escalate once you decide to walk out that door. So I always say each case is is on a case by case basis, okay. and I definitely think that they there should be some safety planning and things that go into place because you have to factor in, um, you know, how that person has been abusing you thus far. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Um, so just because he hasn't laid a hand on you, he or she or whoever your partner may be hasn't laid, physically laid hands on you and they've just only been verbal or they've only been emotional doesn't mean that they will not escalate in uh, revert to other tactics because you have to remember abuse is about control. 
it, it's a, and when someone feels like they're losing control, especially if they're seriously disturbed, they will resort to other measures and, and often extreme measures uh, to try to get their control back. Um, and so that that's something that I would definitely work with with a trained professional um, that, that specialized. So doing it with, you know, doing some safety planning with a therapist. Uh, there's a national domestic violence hotline that can also help with that and um, help you with safety planning. And I know a lot of people when they hear domestic violence or when they see domestic violence, um, they start to think that, oh, my situation isn't that bad. You know, it's not that bad. It's not, you know, that, you know, and so they start to minimize. But the one thing I would encourage people to say or do is that abuse is abuse is abuse. Um, and it can always escalate and it can turn and change. It's just like a, a hurricane. A hurricane can, you know, go from, so many miles per hour, but, you know, if the conditions are right, it can still do a great amount of destruction. You know what I'm saying? And yeah, so that's a good way to build and grow. Um, you just may not have been privy to it yet. Um, and so I would definitely just continue to do those things. Even if you feel like your situation isn't that bad, um, you also have to remember that because you are being abused, you are not you may not necessarily be in a rational state of mind. And so that's part of how abuse works is by discounting or dismissing rationality um, and minimizing what your feelings are or taking away your feelings. And so um, people who are being abused often tend to be dismissive because that's what abusers do. They take away your power and they teach you how to dismiss your own thoughts and feelings. Um, and so that's another thing you want to talk to someone who's outside of the bubble and that can be objective and tell you, you know, what's really going on here. Cause sometimes we need that, that extra person to say, okay, no, he did push you or, or no, he is doing this with your finances. So that does constitute as abusive or this is dangerous or he's stalking you this is very dangerous and that can escalate. So here's what you need to do. And sometimes we need that. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to that's been like, Oh no, it's a one-time thing. Or he just gets a little jealous and insecure sometimes. So it's nothing, but in all actuality, that's like a big red flag. And so those are things that we, we need help from others that are not caught up in it or who are specifically trained in it to help us understand what exactly is going on. Great. Wow. That is so much good information. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the last question, what is your superpower? Oh, I think while you're thinking, I'll, I'll say, because my thing is that we need to get rid of this myth of like superwoman and supermom and yeah. all that, but that everybody does have their superpower, yeah. right? It's that one yeah. thing you just are awesome at. Yeah. I would say, um, my superpower is a lie detector. I can usually pick out people who are lying or conning within a matter of a few seconds. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Because I'm, I'm used to working with criminals and con men and, and dangerous individuals. So I can usually spot them in a matter of a few seconds. Wow. That's and, awesome. Uh, I know how to work with them based on what they're presenting with. Um, so I can tell whether this person is physically aggressive, whether this person is, um, 
psychotic and aggressive or, you know, just really quickly assess the level of dangerousness um, and, and uh, you know, be able to work with that person um, based on the level of, of dangerousness very, very quickly. Okay. Well, that yeah. is an incredible superhero, <laughs> especially if you're working in a prison. That's amazing. Yes. Yes. All right. Well, great. Well, thank you again for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. Thank you so much, Natalie, for joining me today. I have to say that is one of the most compelling personal stories I have ever heard. And I had no idea about that situation before we started talking. I want to thank you so much for being so open and honest and transparent. I know that has to be difficult. If you're listening and any of these things sound like you, I highly encourage you to find someone safe that you can talk to, be that a family member or friend or a therapist, and figure out if what you are living with is not right so that you can get help. There is help available out there. And even if you're sick and you think, I can't support myself, he knows or she knows that I'm stuck here and there's nothing I can do about it, that is no way to live. So no matter what your situation, there are places that can help you. I know the United Way in the US, you just pick up the phone, call 211. They can help you with bills and housing and all kinds of things. And I encourage you to find the help that you need. Because like I said, no one needs to live in this. It is not a good thing. And if you think that your kids don't know what's happening you are mistaken because children do pick up on it and they do know. So if you think I'm just staying in this abusive situation until my kids grow up or move out, that's probably not a great thing to do um, because then you're they're learning how to be a victim and how to be a victimizer. So again, I encourage you to get help. If you know somebody who's going through this, gently encourage them to get help. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. It was a little long, but I didn't want to cut a thing because it was amazing. I appreciate you being with me today. And I hope to have you back next week because Dr. Natalie Jones is back again next week. And we're going to talk about narcissistic people in our lives and the unhealthiness of that and what it's like and what the signs of that are too and how to get help if you're there. So I encourage you to come back next week and listen because isn't she amazing? She is just so amazing and wonderful to listen to. So I encourage you to do that. Please subscribe if you haven't subscribed yet to the podcast. That way you get the next one every week and you'll automatically be notified next Wednesday when this episode comes up. Thank you again for joining me. Our music today is A New Day by Scott Holmes. Be well. Be well.